just one example, Los Angeles Unified School District, uh, they started putting together an agenda that had nothing to do with education of children or even the union members' working conditions, said, we're demanding that you put a moratorium on charter schools before we'll open our school. Completely irrelevant. Welcome back to The Kevin Roberts Show. Here we are in 2023, and a lot of people think that, you know, the country's not on the best track. It's getting better, folks. And one of the reasons it's getting better is because we are going to score a lot of policy wins in the realm of education this year. Just mark my words. And one of the reasons that's going to happen is because of the work of this week's guest, my friend, the director of education policy at the Discovery Institute on the West Coast, but you can trust her. Dr. Carrie Ingraham. Thanks for joining me, Carrie. You bet. Glad to be here. It's always a joy to be at Heritage. Well, thanks. We, you've been here for a really important event on education policy and, and confronting all of the attacks on the human person. We may get into that some, but the, the real point is, in our conversation is to focus on what you've been doing with education policy. You are also someone, as we'll discuss, who's been in the classroom. You've been a school administrator. So for, for those of you who may not actually know of the work that Carrie does, you're going to be big fans by the end of this episode. I should also mention, because Heritage loves the work of the Independent Women's Forum, that in the last days, you have started as a visiting fellow there. Yes, uh, such a joy to be a part of the Independent Women's Forum. So started as a visiting fellow there. And that is in addition to my full-time work at Discovery Institute. So I'm a fellow at Discovery as well as director of their K-12 education center called the American Center for Transforming Education. That's that's fantastic. So Discovery is one of the many policy organizations outside D.C. Mm-hmm. whose work we really rely on here at Heritage because, as, as you and I both know, mm-hmm. and certainly our audience does, almost all the good ideas that Congress ever deals with have bubbled up from the states. Absolutely. And, um, you know, we rely on heritage and just our colleagues across the country. Um, Many think tanks, many organizations are doing great work. And um, I love that there's lots of collaboration amongst our organizations as well as others. So I'm a historian and therefore have to kind of start chronologically. And 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 we've established off camera that I am a southerner. The audience knows that, which means I am fascinated by people's stories how they got to do what they're doing. And as I was asking you about yours, what struck me was that you've been doing education policy for a couple of years in a very self-effacing way. You said, Kevin, I'm a rookie. And that's not true. You're you're one of the leaders of the movement when it comes to education policy. But tell us, Carrie, about not only how you got into doing what you're doing in policy, but, but why your experience in the classroom and ultimately as a school administrator have been informative for you and what you're doing now. You bet. We'll dial back 20 years. I started as a classroom teacher, spent eight years, a Seattle girl, moved to Little Rock, Arkansas, eight years in the classroom. Absolutely loved it. It was teaching, coaching, uh, pouring my life into these middle school and high school students. Loved it. Um, had the opportunity to get my master's doctorate, move in to school administration. So I did that in a traditional brick and mortar school. Um, but then really got excited about the non-traditional. So virtual academy, hybrid, uh, building a business model and the strategic plan for a university model school where students would come certain days a week. Also, parents would be involved more and more at home and just got this passion for what would it look like if we had education that was more innovative, that was serving students beyond, you know, six and a half hours a day, face to face, you know, this traditional model by Horace Mann's framework invented more than 75, 175 years ago 
largely, you know, our traditional public schools are still operating with that framework. And um, I just, it's absolutely astonishing to me because if you think about that framework, Horace Mann, he died decades before Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone. And we're not talking the smartphone, you know, that telephone. But we're still just operating on this one-size-fits-all, very outdated industrial era model. Um, and there's a better way to do it. And the private sector has really led the way um, in some of these different delivery options. But also, we need to get some policy involved to see, you know, what do kids need to learn today? Um, changing graduation requirements, changing certification, opening up the pipeline to subject matter experts, recruiting, retaining those. Um, so my passion is for education freedom, innovation in education, but also on the policy side, you know, breaking down some of these barriers that are preventing both of those from occurring. So it isn't just about the very important objective of school choice. There's a lot more to do in education policy, right? Absolutely. Uh, Discovery Institute, we have a foot in each side. So absolutely empowering parents, also pr- uh, protecting parental rights, which is a huge piece right now of what's happening um, on the education landscape is those rights are being taken from parents. So we're advocating for that. But we also realize many, many students are going to remain in that public school, whether it's traditional charter magnet school um, or beyond. And so bringing in the innovation, trying to defeat some of these radical ideologies that are taken away from academic learning, a lot of the politicization happening in the classroom or through policies, curriculum, and even just teacher life-on-life relationships with students, the content is not school appropriate. It doesn't align with the community and family's values. Uh, so we're working on that. We're working on innovation. And we're also advocating for school choice and education freedom, really, where parents don't have to send their child to a government-run and union-backed school. There's a lot there, which we, we will unpack. But I, I just have to ask you, as someone who spent a lot of years in the classroom and and kind of miss it. I mean, I'm very glad to be doing what I'm doing. But there's just a part of me that every day when I wake up, still anticipate going into a classroom or, or a lecture hall. So I always ask this of, of people who had been in the classroom. Do you miss it? Do you miss teaching? You know, I hate to say no, um, but it's true. So absolutely loved it when I was teaching, coaching, and I was fresh out of college did it from age 22 to 30. Tons of energy, you know, working eight hours a week between coaching six teams at once. It worked. I was going to ask you what you were coaching, but you were co- the answer is you were coaching everything. I was coaching everything. Um, you know, when you're young, you just, you fill the gaps. And so did that for eight years. I didn't miss it because I saw the opportunity to not just influence those students um, and those teams I was coaching, but the opportunity to move into school administration to influence the culture of the entire school and bring a lot of the things I had learned and witnessed at the classroom level to informing decisions at the school level. Um, so did that, went on to become a head of a school. But then from there, uh, transitioned from this traditional, it was a private education school, into the non-traditional. Um, and so I was leading a virtual academy in Dallas, a hybrid program where we had a lot of students where that five-day-a-week in-person didn't serve them well, whether we had, a, you know, might be an elite athlete who simply needed to train during the school day. We had six students um, who didn't want to get behind because of their treatment or hospitalization. So we were serving them, you know, these different populations of kids that either have to miss out, fall behind. Um, And we also had families that just said, hey, my student learns different 
they want to move faster. They need more time. And so being a solution provider was really neat, but also to continue to just innovate. How can we make it more meaningful, higher level learning for these students, life application? Um, you know, you're learning this because, um, and that's a huge link in student motivation and performance is when they can see the why. So did that and then eventually moved into public policy of hopefully moving the needle here on a national um in the national arena of, you know, what can we do to free up parents to have the choice to pick the school that aligns with their values, protect their parental rights, at the same time, better serve those students who remain in traditional public school. So let's let's key in on one of the many excellent points you've already made, and it is the the model of education. Mm-hmm. I've, I've the last few months been saying as important as school choice is, and, and it is, it, it, it is the important mechanism to make the most of the rest of this possible. Ultimately, we have to think even bigger than that. And and you've done such a great job in your work in emphasizing that the Horace Mann style of education really is outdated. It was well-intentioned. It was effective for a couple of, of eras, but we're now a few eras beyond its, its effectiveness. But your, the, the link between that statement and your experience is, as I gather, the last professional stop you made before getting into policy, which is this virtual hybrid school. Mm-hmm. Tell us what that is and, and whether as an educator you think that that really works. Well, this is all before COVID, you know, so we were pretty cutting edge at the time. Um, and when I came into the school, uh, the school had already been in existence in this non traditional delivery method for seven years. And so very, you know, a leader, like I said, cutting edge. Um, But where technologies change, what kids need changes quickly. So we were able to adapt and not just keep, you know, we don't want to keep the traditional model stagnant forever. We don't want to keep the virtual or hybrid model stagnant forever as well. And so taking that delivery um, opportunity to just meet kids anytime, any place. It serves some families well. Now, that's not for everybody, just like brick and mortar is not for everybody. Um, And unfortunately, what we saw during COVID where virtual can get a bad rap is instantly this virtual was forced on everybody, but you had families that they hadn't chosen it. Their students weren't good fits. You know, we had like very niche, you know, students who are motivated, parents who were involved, but also the design, that virtual was specifically designed and teachers were specifically trained and equipped to teach students, facilitate learning through that delivery method. You know, these school shutdowns were completely the opposite, forced upon, you know, just like haphazard uh, remote sessions, you know, zooming in 25 kids looking at a screen as young as five years old for hours on end. Um, very, very different. And so virtual can get a bad rap. But when you've got the students that that's the best fit, they absolutely thrive. Now, with the hybrid program, what we were doing is the students could customize so they could take some classes online and some on campus. And so making the education um, fit to their unique wiring, the way God had gifted them with interest, passion. You know, a student might want to take science on campus for the labs, but language arts, English, you know, maybe they want to move faster or slower. And so online gave them that ability. So is it your sense that the the virtual hybrid model is something that can be scaled? And and the reason that I'm I'm asking that is we, we often we'll get into some of the pushback, but mm-hmm. we often get pushback from from opponents 
to education reform. We might even get into some of their motivations, Carrie. But first, we'll just state what they say, which is that some of these examples like virtual hybrid, you, you can't apply that on a big scale. Um, they would They would argue, certainly not at the level of a state and probably not even the level of a school district. I would gather you would say, based on your experience and research, they're wrong. You know, and there's so many options we haven't really tapped into. So with the COVID school shutdowns, there was a lot of new education models that came on the scene beyond the virtual, beyond the hybrid. You look at micro schools, learning pods, um, private tutors who might just be retired teachers, grandparents, parents with a background, more and more homeschool co-ops. We saw this explosion of different delivery methods. Um beyond the virtual, beyond the hybrid, and those are continuing to flourish. The number of micro schools popping up nationwide is unbelievable, but they don't all look the same. And I think that's the same with the virtual. The virtual isn't always going to look the same. It's going to be tailored. And as technology moves forward, especially virtual in the private sector than the public provided, um, they're thinking of creative solutions. You know, they're smaller, they're more nimble. Uh, they're not dealing with the teachers' unions and all this bureaucracy. And so they're advancing how they're delivering. They're very responsive to serve parents' needs, get feedback. Just like we saw in the traditional, you know, we had two extreme examples during COVID when schools shut down. So schools shut down in March of 2020. That spring, that summer, you had private schools polling parents saying, what do you want for this fall? How can we best serve your family? What are your concerns? What are you looking for? You know, we're here to help. They took that data and then they made a plan and opened in the fall of 2020. Now, I was a part of a private school as a consultant that they wanted to open. That's what their families wanted. They opened in full. But they had about 5% of their population where um, maybe someone in the family had a compromised immune system or something was going on. And they said, we don't want to miss out on the school community, but we need to be virtual another semester, another year. Uh, so in addition to opening full time, they were so responsive to serve the families. They also built a virtual academy, and that's where I came in to help. Flip side, you've got these traditional public schools saying, you know, in that summer, What's best for our adults? How can we leverage this thing? The teacher union bosses were saying, we're not opening. Like, our kids are hostage right now. We are going to take full advantage of this. I mean, so extreme. You know, out in, just one example, Los Angeles Unified School District, uh, they started putting together an agenda that had nothing to do with education of children or even the union members' working conditions, said, we're demanding that you put a moratorium on charter schools before we'll open our school completely irrelevant. You know, you need to defund, defund the police. Again, not relevant. And then another one was Medicare for all. And so they took advantage. There wasn't the focus on what's best for children. What do families want? And that curtain was pulled back. Parents saw that. They also saw what was happening in these remote Zoom sessions, you know, very limited academics, poor quality. Um, and then these political agendas being pumped in at the expense of reading, writing, math, what their children desperately needed. And so there's been a mass exodus of the public schools, um, and it's going to continue. And as universal school choice continues to grow, as we saw in Arizona, absolutely landmark legacy of Governor Doug Ducey, um, combine that with the educational entrepreneurs and these innovative delivery models, those two hand-in-hand you're going to get more and more people leaving the traditional public school. And when you do, you break up that monopoly. You add competition. 
um, you add the opportunity for innovation. Um, and that's the only way to get any traction with those powerful teacher unions is money. Money talks with them. So you get families to leave. Families that have left aren't coming back. We've seen, you know, they've experienced education's better, customer service is better. This aligns with our family values. And the flip side, you know, the unions are taking notice. They really overplayed their hand. They are, and, and, and they did so, and I don't believe this is an exaggeration, like typical Marxists. Because Marxists, we know from their takeover of so many countries in the 20th century, never let a crisis go to waste. And by that, I mean they see every potential problem as, or every problem as a potential point of leverage for expanding their power over the human person. And so those examples that you mentioned about gender ideology, about, for that matter, some of the really nefarious aspects of the so-called Green New Deal, which is anti-human, to even worse, the point is that apolitical American parents looking not for a conservative school, but just for a school to teach reading, mm -hmm. writing, and arithmetic exactly. said we've had enough. And, and the silver lining, if there is one, to the overwrought COVID lockdowns, which were also anti-human, is that we realized enough of America is still awake. Mm -hmm. And so I want to speak now about the moment we're in from a, a policy point of view. And, and that moment we're in seems to me, having worked in, in this field for a long time, as, as you have, both as a practitioner and policy person, has at least three streams or three strands that have come together. The first is the nonsense of, of the left, evidenced by what the teachers unions and their allies as superintendents have done, school boards and so on. Mm -hmm. That's one strand. The second is the, the, the policy maturation. By that, I mean, I worked on education freedom in Texas for many years, as you know, and, and we would get bits and pieces. I happen to think 2023 is when we, we were able to, to break that logjam. The reason is because there have been so many policy scholars and elected officials, and for that matter, governors. Uh, Governor Ducey, you mentioned, is, is the hero of heroes when it comes to the school choice movement. We've now turned a corner where people realize if, if you're center-right, and you're a policy person or an elected official, you have to support education reform. That's the second strand. Mm -hmm. It's the third one, however, that I think is the most promising. And it's the one that sometimes policy people have forgotten. And it's one that you not only have participated in, but have been. And that is an entrepreneur, an educational entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And so before we talk about the, the, the policy moment we're in, I'm going to ask you to define a couple of terms. Right. And it's it's become, and I, I do the same thing. I talk about micro schools and learning pods. And then I get home and my family says, what are those? What's a micro school? All right. Um, you got to think broad. So we know what a traditional school is. You know, it's just one size fits all. Well, micro schools are started by educational entrepreneurs and they all put their stamp on it. So there's not like a set structure of, you know, they meet in this site for this amount of time and do it this way. But that educational entrepreneur uses their expertise, what they believe is best practice, and they customize it with input from the families. So microschool, for example, will be um, a provider that says, I'm going to have a small school, hence the word micro, and I'm going to serve these students, you know, grade levels different, delivery models different. Um, and there's quite the range of how much parental involvement um, is expected. And they let parents know on the front end. You know, so, for example, this might be a hybrid micro school. 
So three days a week, you know, it's the teacher's responsibility. On those other two days, here's mom and dad's responsibility to facilitate that learning, to encourage that student. Um, others are five days a week. Um, they're also making really innovative and creative um, education delivery. You know, some are focused on outdoor school, very hands-on. Um, so moving away from what parents saw extremely different than those Zoom sessions. Um, so micro school would be that really small school. And their goal is not to grow and be big, but to replicate and start more micro schools as the demand increases. And it is. Um, education entrepreneurs can't keep up with the demand right now of families. So that that particular subset, if you yeah. will, of, of uh, private schools is is growing quickly and so the 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 model is scalable but the the individual school isn't looking to do that that's sort of the definition exactly. of it and it it seems that it's it's eminently customizable and i i i guess intuit that it's growing quickly because as as parents as societies coming out of the covid lockdowns and they know they're not going to go back to the public schools for reasons you articulated so well they're looking for an option that's somewhere between what they've been doing and public schools, they aren't really looking to a larger private school because, as you and I both know well, given our experience, a lot of them are beset with the same problems. Mm -hmm. They're looking for something that's actually going to meet their kids' needs. Yeah. And the small micro schools, you know, they can adapt. They can pivot. They can respond to those families in ways larger organizations just can't. And so that ability, like you mentioned, to customize, but also to adapt along the way. Um, the students are soaring, reaping those benefits, and parental input is really being able to not just be heard on that scale, but also implemented. And so I'm, I imagine you would agree with me if, if we have someone in the audience who says, man, micro schools just sounds, sounds great. What should I do? Go start one. Right? Absolutely. It's that easy. Absolutely. You know, there's so much we all can do. We can get overwhelmed with this, um, but there's ways that we can all make a difference. Um, you know, how can you support maybe a relative, a neighbor to homeschool? It doesn't mean you're there, you know, five, six days a week, full time taking on their family life. Maybe you say, hey, I'm going to pop over one hour a week and here's my area of expertise. And I'm going to encourage students in that from my professional background and share that knowledge and wealth with them. Or, you know, maybe it's starting a micro school. Maybe it's helping a family provide that tuition money so they can enroll in a private school um, or have funding for some tutoring or for a learning pod, different avenues. But we can all do something. Obviously, the ballot box. We need to make sure that we're engaged, we're voting, we're supporting candidates um, who align with our values, but also candidates that are going to have the political will and they're going to follow through to implement school choice and free up families and it doesn't force or mandate families to exit the public school, but it gives options. You know, there's no other place with government funding where families are so restricted. You know, you look at pre-K, they get government funding and they can still pick the provider. You look at higher education, can still take those grants, select the university, but it's this 13 years sandwiched right in the middle where we're saying, you know, it's government money. It's not government money, it's taxpayer money. It's these families that need to be empowered to take those resources, put them into the school or the educational model that will best serve their child. Every child is unique and it's not one size fits all. The moment has arrived Absolutely. for policy to reflect the competition among schools that parents so crave. And another one of those examples of a different kind of school is a learning pod. So yes. explain what that is. Okay, micro school, think a little bit more formal. So. 
you've got a teacher, you've got students who are coming and rolling. A learning pod can be more informal. So we saw more of these during COVID right away, and then they've kind of morphed a lot of them into the micro school. But that learning pod could just be some community neighbors coming together and saying, hey, there's a tutor we can hire and all of our students can come together. Or it might be that they're utilizing online providers or co-ops, but they come together to have some group um, activities, some shared learning sessions. Again, it's more informal than what you're going to see on that micro school level. Um, and it was kind of the precursor to a lot of these micro schools is that learning pod. So the answer to the question, what will replace the Horace Mann model of education is all of the above, everything you've been talking about. Now let's talk about how we make that more possible mm -hmm. in the policy sphere. And let's start with the good. I mean, we, we spend a lot of time, those of us who are right of center education reformers, talking about the worst case scenarios. Yes. And we've done a little bit of that out of necessity because it really is that bad. In fact, you and I have been rather polite when it comes to the problems mm -hmm. besetting government-funded schools. Which states have been in the lead when it comes to education reform, in your opinion? Well, unfortunately, the best kept secret has been what Arizona did this past year. So on July 7th, uh, just three days after Independence Day, all families in Arizona, more than 1.1 million students, were set free from being restricted to their government-assigned school or relying on their parents to have the ability to homeschool or provide private school tuition. Every family. So when people say, you know, school choice hurts the poor, it hurts minorities, it's only for elite Universal school choices for everybody. It helps everybody, especially those that can't afford private school. So it's opposite of that argument. But what Governor Doug Ducey did in Arizona, um, the message has got to get told. The everyday person does not know that universal school choice is a reality in America as of now. And had the opportunity to visit with the governor, uh, write a tribute, national publication, uh, not just to tell the story, but to commend him, to commend his leadership. As I spoke with the governor, he shared, you know, this doesn't have to be just an Arizona thing. I challenge my fellow governors, take this bill, take these policies, scratch out Arizona, put your state name in there. And let's start getting this beyond just Arizona. Um, the demand, the demand was absolutely crazy. All parents have to do is just apply, and they'll receive uh, between six thousand five hundred and seven thousand students, seven thousand dollars per student per year. Well, as soon as they launched the website, it crashed because of the demands. It's a good problem, um, but Governor Ducey, we've got to tell that story. You know, clearly he's been the MVP, and we've had a championship season there in his last year in office. Um, but he's passing the baton to other governors. You know, we've got Kevin Stitz. I was able to speak with him uh, just a couple months ago. Oklahoma. He, Oklahoma. He's set um, to start getting to work on this just last night. Kim Reynolds. Uh, Iowa. Iowa last night. She announced their universal education savings account um, bill that they're going to be working on, trying to move forward. And so the question now isn't, is it possible, but what state's going to be next? And and how quickly you can go get it done. And and I'm, I'm proud to say, as, as you know, I think I'm permitted to be proud of the work that my colleagues at Heritage do, that Heritage is, is playing a vital role in those places and others, along with some other great organizations. Mm -hmm. For example, in Texas, we are merely one part of a, a large coalition led by my previous organization, Texas Public Policy Foundation, on universal school choice in Texas. And it's going to happen. 
it's it's absolutely going to happen. And and Governor Abbott, who's a friend, has been outspoken, more vocal mm-hmm. than he's been in the time that I've known him on this issue. And yet, I'm going to ask your your advice here. One of the the difficulties in Texas, in particular, because you might have heard it's a big place. You were in Dallas. There's a <laughs> lot of Texas a west few of Dallas. Years, yes. There are really good guys and gals who are rural legislators, who are conservatives. They are great people. But on the vote on school choice, they're almost universally opposed. And I don't get into imputing motives. I just give everyone the benefit of the doubt, especially if they're a fellow conservative. And and the kinds of things they say, and so I'm trying to represent their argument fairly, are – Kevin, there, there are no private schools in, in a rural district. Uh, there's no way you can go use this money. Secondly, that money is going to take away from my local school, and that's not good. We don't, we don't want a problem of funding for these rural schools. And the third thing is, and they're usually honest enough to say this, mm-hmm. the local school is the biggest employer. It's the heart of the community. Football games are good. I love football, as you know. You were razzing me earlier for your Washington Huskies beating my Texas Longhorns. We're going to move right past that, Carrie. Uh, How do you respond to them in a way that Mm. persuades them? Because these are people we ought not demonize. They're on our side. Um, We need their votes. Kind of just breaking down each of those categories is jobs aren't going away for educators. They'll just be moving from a single supplier to more options. Um, when you say, you know, funding is going to go away for public schools, which is just, you know, that chief lie out there, if you're going to defund the public schools by school choice, well, consider that an educational savings account takes the state funding and gives that to parents, but you still have that local and federal funding. And even in a charter school, when that student leaves um, a traditional school to go to a charter school, that's Traditional schools not serving them any longer, but they're still getting the funding. So what happens is they may have less students, but their funding per student goes higher, and it's already pretty astronomical. And so in a way, when they're having to serve less students with more money, truly, you know, you're not defunding them. You're giving them more and more um, pretty good situation. You know, I don't know any other business or industry. Well, that works, you know, lose a customer, still get the funding, less to serve. And, you know, you're winning financially. It's it's pretty yeah. remarkable. And then the, 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 the one part of their argument mm-hmm. that I have focused on is, in conversations yeah. with them is, and I know that they, they, they mean this, honestly, I'm just giving them that benefit of the doubt again, is that there are no quote unquote private schools in the area. Well, the, the last five years, especially the last mm-hmm. two, with the emergence of so many micro schools and learning pods and virtual hybrids, really does undermine that point that mm-hmm. they would find a lot of those options if parents had the freedom, right, to spend yeah. that money the way that that bill would would authorize it. You know, and we talked about earlier how students are, you know, getting pulled out by their parents of these traditional public schools. Well, students aren't the only ones flocking out. Faculty and staff are. Uh, They are not satisfied with what they're seeing as far as the curriculum, the policies, these radical ideas that they're forced to implement. Um, They don't want to be controlled by the unions any longer. So as they leave where a lot of these educational entrepreneurs are coming from that are starting these schools in their same community as that traditional public school are saying, hey, I don't have to be on this stair-step salary schedule that ignores my job performance. You know, I'm producing high student learning, but my colleague down the hall isn't. 
and you know they're more senior than I and they're making more, they can see, hey, I can step out of this union-controlled system, really set the own course in my professional career, do it in a smaller scale, have the autonomy, put their stamp on it, um, work with families in a way where those relationships get so strong, not just with the students, but coming alongside the parents. Um, so those schools are popping up more and more to your point. But as soon as more families leave, that exodus of those teachers is just going to grow and grow, not just financial reasons, but also cultural. Well, it's true. And, and, and the following point perhaps will, will give us the opportunity to talk about another aspect of education reform, which is how we prepare and license teachers. Yes. But I, I happen to know that it's, it's reality, both anecdotally and, and reading a lot of studies about this, that in these aforementioned rural schools, because of, of how and where we train teachers, that those people are infected with the same virus of the radical mm -hmm. left that someone in a city is. And so the, the point is the, the values of those schools and the values of their faculty rarely reflect how traditional the values yes. are of those rural communities. That's a double tragedy. First and foremost, for the children and the families there. Mm -hmm. But secondly, because the other really good thing that's happened as a result of COVID, ironically, is that more people are leaving cities. They're, they're looking mm -hmm. to more rural or at least exurban communities that reflect their values. If the schools there end up doing the same thing, whether in content or in the lack of educational attainment that some of the suburban schools have done, the, the very reason that, that people are looking to move, it's a tremendous missed opportunity for these rural communities to revitalize. And, and, and I happen to think that one of, the, one of the heartbeats of conservatism is healthy rural America. Mm -hmm. For these rural legislators, they're actually not representing their people well by being so obstinate when it comes to education reform. You nailed it. And take what you said. I get an A plus? A plus. Okay, thanks. Um, but put it on the scale of states now, not just rural. Uh, you know, we see people are flocking to Arizona because of the education freedom. They can select the school for their child, especially flocking from California. Um, and so not only is it going to help communities on that level um, and as they're growing, but people are moving into states that are pro-freedom, education and beyond. You know, we see this in Florida. Um, I live on the West Coast, Washington State, mass exodus of businesses leaving for many reasons, families. Um, but they're wanting, to your point in the rural areas, they're wanting a different way to raise their family. They're wanting a different culture. You know, they're moving away from that crime. They're moving away um, from really the hubs of these radical ideologies that are just so counterintuitive to the best interest of individuals, to their well-being, to human flourishing. And when they see that impacting their child and that indoctrination, um, they're leaving. And, you know, they're leaving cities, but they're leaving states, too. And this is a trend that Heritage looks forward to accelerating mm -hmm. because the states are laboratories of democracy. And I, I, I rue the day for red states whose legislators don't have the courage to do what's right when it comes for every single child and the education we have a moral obligation to provide as a free people because what's going to happen is parents understand what that means and they will leave. It really is that simple. Real estate agents, if we had a, a realtor on this show, they would say people move according to the quality of schools yeah. and the absence of real educational options especially if that absence is artificially created mm -hmm. by obstinate policymakers, 
has consequences that in five and 10 years will really affect their municipal revenue, their state revenue. So I'm smiling because we happen to know that this has happened. Talk to Doug Ducey. Talk to Ron DeSantis. Talk to governors. Kim Reynolds is going to have the same yes. story in her more agricultural state when that universal school choice bill is passed. They know this. It's, it's the right thing to do for kids, but it's also the right thing to do for everyone in the state. Absolutely. You know, the benefits of school choice, they're so much more far reaching than the child. And that's absolutely essential. And that's the why. But these ripple effect. And so what you see is it impacts that child's trajectory. But that child grows up, they enter the workforce. Once they're equipped, once they have that character and they're prepared to be a citizen and they're taught history from this lens where they don't hate their country. And unfortunately, you know, our traditional public schools right now are so anti-America, they're teaching children to hate their country. But when you get a segment, a growing segment of students being educated in, from a different worldview outside of that public system, that sets the course, not just for their families, but for their community, their state, you know, workforce development implications, the economy in the state, societal benefits. You know, there's a lot of research on, you know, education linked with lack of education linked with crime and those things. And really, the piece that it comes back to is developing that child, equipping them for life. Uh, you know, that's going to lead them to be stronger in their family. Families are going to impact that community, the health of the family. Um, and we want people to flourish and thrive. And it really starts with education. And education freedom is essential to that. That's a great way to wrap up. But I'm going to ask you one more question. All right. You are such an optimist. It's one of the reasons that you're so effective. And so we've dealt with some candor in our conversation. And yet we did so on purpose for the sake of helping people who might not fully realize both the problem, but also the extent of the opportunity to really be involved in this. And so sort of a two-part question. In spite of the challenges in America, in American education, why are you optimistic about the future? And what can people in the audience do to help your efforts and the efforts of the broader education reform movement to keep you optimistic? Mm -hmm. Well, the number one thing that keeps me optimistic is there's hope because parents care. Parents love their children more than anybody else, despite what Randy Weingartner, despite what the NEA says, it's parents. And parents are engaged. There's a very critical window right now where there's momentum. Um, parents are standing up. They're speaking out. Um, and they're rallying those around them. Grandparents beyond community leaders. Um, business is now getting involved to see, you know, not just from a workforce development, um, but the actual worldview that these students are coming out with. And they're saying, hey, we recognize that we need to empower the family, the parent. Um, no longer is it okay to just say we're going to continue to fund this radical, just extreme union agenda, which is, you know, linked up with that progressive far left um, political leaders, and they're saying, hey, we want to fund the family. And it's because parents have had the courage. They've made the time to say, hey, time out. Enough is enough. That is the heart, the mind, the soul of my child. Um, I don't want you experimenting on them. You know, whether it's radical gender ideology, critical race theory, we're going to protect our child. And because the everyday American is standing up on behalf of their child, it's creating this movement. And that's what gives me hope is what everyday Americans are doing to speak into this. So policy is important. You know, those experts around the country are important. 
but it's the moms and dads that are driving this and making the biggest difference. So people hearing that can can help by continuing to do what they've been doing, which is to speak up. And when the speaking up doesn't create results that are appropriate for their children to do their own thing, whether that's homeschooling, being part of a micro school, a learning pod, founding a private school from this this founder of a private school, it's hard work, but it's worth it. The, the point is, and I think this is the headline that you've delivered so well, Carrie, is all of the above is possible. Any of the above is possible and it's happening. And there are resources for anyone who's willing to lean into the fight. Dr. Carrie Ingraham, thanks for being here. You bet. I hope you enjoy that conversation as much as I did. See, I told you two things, that you have reason for optimism because we're making it happen in education reform this year. And secondly, that our heritage friend, Dr. Carrie Ingraham, is one of those people who's doing it right there in the state of Washington. So thanks for tuning in. Thanks for making this possible. And we will be back soon with another patriot who's making a difference. Take care. The Kevin Roberts Show is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producer is Crystal Kate Bonham. The producer is Philip Reynolds. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and Tim Kennedy. For more information and to subscribe, please visit heritage.org.